During lockdown, I've been recording a series of conversations with a range of people discussing their journeys and life in 2020. The discussions have formed my new podcast series, Pearl Conversations. Joining me for this week's episode is businessman and the powerless 2019 most influential Black Britain, Rick Lewis. We discussed the Black Lives Matter movement, his experience of discrimination within his industry, the importance of representation, what it was like playing against Michael Jordan in college basketball, and the Black Heart Foundation, which helps finance underprivileged youngsters. Mr. Rick Lewis, how are you? I'm very well. Happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. How has this lockdown period been for you? Well, I'm not a, I'm not the greatest person at staying in one place, so um, it has tested some of my uh, uh, my uh, more remote skills. But uh, I've adjusted. You know, at least. Um, you know, I, I feel fortunate. You know, I have the circumstance of where I live and have a garden, and I know that I'm better off than a lot of people that don't have that option. And so, but staying at home most of the time has been crushing me. Um, getting out for sport has been my savior. Wow. Um, and how has it impacted? Have you been able to like, manage your businesses and your foundations from home? Has that presented any challenges? Yeah, so we, we've gone to full remote work for for our company for Tristan Capital so we we run and we own and manage on behalf of our clients a huge portfolio all across Europe we're in 19 countries and so we've had to run that portfolio nearly 12 billion euros pounds worth of of uh, properties from remote and you know there was a point a couple months ago or a month and a half ago where every one of the properties was closed down by federal decree. So, um, so that, that was pretty challenging. Now it's become challenging because they're open again. Uh, tenants are happy to be back in and running their businesses, but we don't know how many of them are going to survive under the new social distancing rules and, yeah. and regulations. So we're in that place where we're trying to help them as they try to get back on their feet. That's a better place to be than we were, but there's still plenty of challenges. And has your outlook on, you know, you know, personally, I found like lockdown a very reflective period. Has your perceptions on things changed? Has your outlook on certain things changed? Yeah, for sure. It is a very reflective period. And that can be a good thing because, you know, slowing down and having some time to be mindful is a good thing. But you've got to like what you see in the mirror, whatever you reflect on. And generally, I do. But you know, it does highlight some of those things that, like, you know, like, oh right, I wish I was better at this. Oh, I'm distracted by that, you know. And so, um, but it has been a very uh, what's the right way to say it? Interesting time. You think about not only are we dealing with the pandemic, but we've had all of this eruption of Black Lives Matters movement, et cetera. There's been a lot to reflect on uh, professionally personally, culturally, and, and I, I'm bicontinental. I live here, I've been here 21 years, but you can hear my American accent. So I'm negotiating those things through two countries, two different leadership models, two different leaders, two different rules of law. Um, so there's been a lot to reflect on. Yeah, there's a lot to dissect with that. Even moving on to the whole topic of Black Lives Matter, what has been your obviously during lockdown this has kicked off and it has you know a lot of these problems and issues aren't new problems that aren't things that have suddenly just happened but it has captured the consciousness of a lot of people in a way that it probably hasn't done since since the 60s perhaps what what has been your take on on the movement well, I, I think there's two different ways. Intellectually, I look at it and say, look, the protest and, you know, the, the anger, the emotion that comes out of that, hopefully that will evolve into greater understanding and compassion and empathy. And then from there, we move, you know, protest, anger, indignation moves into civil debate and discourse. And what I'm really hoping for is intent to change. And you know, with my foundation, we're trying to provide opportunities to change. But on a personal level, 
you know, it's hard not to have an existential moment. You know, I come from that background. If you look at me and my age, I'm a product of post-civil rights U.S. experience. You know, the opening that we had after the last time it erupted this violently in the 1960s is how I grew up. And I got, you know, I grew up in sort of the rolling, following tide of that time. And I got opportunities because people were more open-minded of it. It's sad to feel like things, some things have changed and some things haven't changed at all. Um, I think the, the sharpest existential moment I had was realizing, you know, and, and we probably all had that in our own way, was how many excuses did I make along the way on my path to bigger and better and more successful for things that happened to me that I just thought were okay or i just had to climb over them that are never okay should never have been okay and should never be okay i think i think a lot of people would have shared that experience because a lot of people especially people of color when you're a minority or when you're the other in a in a certain space or environment you often, you know, it's, it's human nature to try and assimilate. It's human nature to try and try and fit in and blend in. And I think you often get, you often let a lot of things slide and you often let a lot of things go, you know, undercover or sweep it under the brush just because you don't want to cause a fuss. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's 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 damaging on a personal lef- level, but it's also damaging because you shouldn't really be put in that situation in the first place. Yeah. Um, well, it's exactly that. So, so we we both, I'm sure, have had those moments where we've done that, and you didn't think it was okay, but you thought it was part of the process to climbing and better. And you know, to some extent, if if you're accomplishing anything, and, and we both have been in our own different realms. No one sees the grind. No one sees the hurdles you take. They see the finished product. They see you on the pitch. They see the success. They see the score. They see the tries. They see whatever it is. They don't see the grind. What they also don't understand is that when you're other, how difficult it is. The mistakes are amplified. The behavior that you have to exercise to not miss the option, you know, is is ever so scrutinized. You know, the the workload, how good you have to be to measure up in many cases. And because, forgive me for including both of us in this, but because we're accomplished, you sit there and you go like, well, you normalize it. That's just how it is. Then you climb the ladder. And I think what happened to me is that I realized like, actually, I've made excuses for a lot of this stuff along the way. And there, you know, I just assume that it's part of the process of being tough and climbing the ladder, but like, no, it shouldn't exist that way. And I want to change it for now and for the future in every way I can, because the people after me shouldn't have to go through some of the stuff I went through. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting you say that because a lot of the reasons that, or arguments against um, what we're talking about um, when, we, when we talk about even institutional racism or, or unconscious bias or whatever a lot of the arguments are like oh look rick rick lewis has done it like he's he's a black man he's uh he's succeeded um whereas that misses the point because obviously yes you you've succeeded you've you've achieved um amazing things but it is the hurdles that you've had to face people of people white people don't have to face them Caucasian people don't have to face them and so the barriers of entry or the barriers that you have to go through are different to that of the um you know the standard white person that is doing the same things that you're doing yeah that was exactly it I mean you know I have good friends that you know that they understand intellectually that racism exists and they said but but you know certainly it isn't as big as we think it is and you haven't experienced it and I said When's the last time you've been in a public place in a restaurant and someone thought you were the staff and handed you something, you know, a menu or, you know, their golf clubs to caddy for them? And they're like, certainly that didn't happen to you. I'm like, that happened to me two years ago, not like 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's part of just what happens. And so, and what we find, because I'm who I am and successful, whatever, like, I find like I'm trying to find the graceful way to not embarrass the heck out of them for doing it. I'm like, that's another sacrifice or cost that shouldn't have to happen, but it is what you negotiate in life, right? 
you yeah, know, was, or, or, or people say to me, and, and you know, this is one of those things, and I'm not trying to be a complainant, but I think people don't hear these things from me enough where people go like, well, you're not really black. I'm like, hold on, hold on, like, why? Because I'm light-skinned or because I speak well or because I was well-educated. I'm like, you do understand that that's not a compliment. You understand that I'm actually really proud to be black and successful. Like, you're not including me in something by telling me that I'm not really that. And, you know, when I talk to some of my friends about this, they sit there and they go, God, that's horrible. And like, and it hits them viscerally, but like they don't actually think it happens or that you've negotiated that on your path. And sometimes by people that are junior to me or trying to do business with me or, you know, need my help or actually saying that. And they go, how can that be? Like, that is what we're negotiating. That's why there's been so much anger in the world that people that have experienced this and have achieved less or have less than I have are really angry because they're like, look, I've been going through this and I haven't gotten up the hill. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on trying to change that dynamic and narrative. I was in, I was in Waitrose maybe like three, three weeks ago. And the, the wild thing about this one was it wasn't even a, um, it wasn't even a customer. It was one of the workers. Um, this young lady who was working there came up to me and asked me where my shift starts. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, sorry, <laughs> my what starts? Um, but it's, it's crazy. It's, yeah, it's wild. No, no, we've, we've all had that. I mean, I, I, how much we get into this, but like, I, I'm at a five star hotel and my, and I'm, I'm, my family's there, my mom's there, and I'm getting her a chair to sit at the outdoor bar. And this older gentleman says, we need three chairs here. And I go, yeah, no, no, I got this. I'm, I'm taking this one. He's like, no, no, but we need it here. And I can see his family running up after him to go, no, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm taking this chair for my elderly mother. And my mom will kill me if I, if she knows I called her elderly because she's <laughs> 78 going on 60. So she'll backhand me for, for calling her elderly. But like, yeah, but yeah, that, that stuff happens and people just don't believe it can happen. It's like, and it's based on nothing more than the color of my skin, right? Like nothing else. Like they couldn't possibly know anything about me, my education, my socioeconomic status, what I've achieved, you know, how many rooms I have at the hotel, et cetera. Like, yeah, it's, and for me, I think that's as a result of, of conditioning. I think as a, as a result of social conditioning over a period of time, because if you think about it, like from when from when we leave um, our mother's womb, like through what we consume on the television, through media, through through our teachers, they all teach this almost negative depiction of what it is to be black, even in terms of you know the language we use, whether it's um, blackmail or our black sheep or whatever it is, is always negative connotations around around the color black and i think that perpetuates itself in such a way where these people sometimes it's unconscious sometimes it's very conscious um but they have this bias towards to towards um our group of people but one question i wanted to ask you was um you mentioned earlier that you were born out of that 1960s um civil rights movement um obviously i'm a little bit too young to, yeah, that's all right. that's <laughs> to, right. to resonate but I, would, that's right. I would like to ask like how would you contrast the times in terms of organization because back then it seemed at least like from like doing a little bit of research it seems that there was you know clear like leadership on the issues and things that we wanted to progress Obviously, you know, black people aren't a monolith, so, you know, not everyone's going to necessarily agree. I think that's also, that was also encapsulated in that time with Martin Luther King and like Malcolm X. Um, so, but how do you describe the organization of the movement then compared to the movement now? Well, I, th I think you've got two things. You've got then and now, and you've got the US and the UK. I mean, so I, I like to say when I moved over here 20 odd years ago, I got here and I felt like 
race relations, not social relations, because people spent time together or they were married or they were couples and stuff like that. So I think that there was intermixing of ethnicities and sort of on a social basis, but in terms of equality of access, opinion, opportunity, it felt like the US in the 70s. Like what I grew up when I was in my younger life, and I don't want to, I, I don't want to give away all the data and say, oh, tell me exactly how old I am. But, but like when I got here, it felt like it was the 70s. Like it was that backwards in terms of social mobility, equality of rights, et cetera. I think we hit that conflagration moment in the States and things were well organized. And then we grew with opportunity, not equality. And there were plenty of issues that have become uncovered now. But remember, we just left four years ago, eight years of a black American president. So we got pretty well organized up to the top. And that's not just in, I'm not saying it was perfect. I'm not saying that it's great, but the meritocracy worked. Like people could get to the top of the land. And that was also true on Wall Street and in business. I'm not saying that there's enough equality. I'm just saying that there were some of us at the highest places in the land. The example is, you know, the award I won in 2019 as the most influential black person in the UK. I'm proud of that. I'm glad we're celebrating the right things. But when I go back and I think about the states, I wouldn't be in the top 500. That's a good thing, right? Like, and people go, oh, you got to be kidding. Like, I go, okay, number one, President Obama. Number two, Michelle Obama. Number three, Kenshin Alt American Express. Number four, the head of NASA. It's a, like, like, there's a lot of people that have moved up there. I feel like the UK is still climbing that ladder. There's some impediments to it. I think we're starting to try to break some of those down and we need better organization. I know that there are some now, some, there have been some that have existed for a long time, but there are some initiatives right now to be much better at organizing Black and BAME initiatives and advocacy that are going on at the grassroots and formation level as we speak. So. I'm hopeful that we're going to be better at it here for the next 10 to 20 years. Yeah. Um, firstly, congratulations on the award. <laughs> <laughs> how, was, how was that moment? Because that actually is, um, it is a big deal. It's, um, it's... It, it, it was fabulous. I mean, I love the fact that we're celebrating ourselves, right? And so like the power list and us celebrating ourselves is a great thing because if we don't celebrate our own successes, how can we expect other people to take part and celebrate it for us? So that yeah. part's great. I've already talked a little bit about how I feel that we need to keep raising the bar because it's great here in the UK, but if I looked at it on a global scale, I wouldn't be in the, and I think enough of myself, I think a lot of myself, but I wouldn't be in the top 500 or thousand, right? Yeah. The cool part here, the, the coolest part, if I'm not gonna lie is, my kids for the first time, my two daughters were really impressed. They were like, dad, you beat Stormzy. <laughs> you, know, you beat Lewis Hamilton, right? Like, and, um, you know, I think that's the part where they, they look at it and say, you know, actually this is something important. But what I love about it is that it's, it's become institutionalized. We're thinking about what that group of leaders looks like. And I hope we continue to do that. I'm emeritus now, so all I can do is support it and help it and whatever, but I'm, I'm a big fan. And what, how, how would you define influence? Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a, a good one. Um, I think that, well, I think in my case, I think that they thought um, I've had influence in business and socially. I mean, the two things the two or three things I do, um, I spend time in my real estate private equity business. And I think at the time, and we might still be, it was considered, and you know, this again is another one of those mixed things. It was the largest black owned business in the UK. You know, yeah. I don't think of it that way. I think of it as a successful UK business who happens to be run by or founded by a guy who is black, but I'll take the plaudits. The second thing is the work I've done in sort of the nexus of underrepresented youth and education and then I think we're trying to bridge the gap with economic empowerment. And I think that's where people felt like, look, you know, I'm kind of, I'm guessing, but I think they thought that this is a triple threat. You're doing stuff in business, you know, in educating sort of the next generation and trying to empower the current generation. I think 
that's probably why I won the award. With Tristan Capital, as you say, obviously, as you're a black man, is, is a black-owned owned business. Um, but the industry in which you work is a pre predominantly Caucasian industry. So there are still issues of representation, still issues of diversity within that. What have you done with Tristan Capital to try and counteract some of these things? Yeah, so first, we, you know, the first thing you can do is, is take stock of where you are and measure it. So we have, from a gender perspective, intersectionality and ethnicity. And we've been scoring ourselves on sort of where we are versus our industry, where we are versus the norms in terms of, you know, women, women in senior positions, women at the most senior positions, et cetera. Same thing with, us, with, with ethnic diversity. The difficulty, as you point out, Mauro, is that that there aren't a lot of people that believe, like young people that believe that they can be in private equity and real estate private equity because they don't see anyone before them. So when we go out to hire a new analyst class of five or six people every year for a 150 person business, we don't get those people applying because they haven't pre-trained with the skills in finance and valuation, et cetera, to be the most attractive candidates and we're a highly selective business. So we've decided now to start an onboarding process where we're going to start a pre-analyst program that's going to be open to under-resourced and underrepresented young people so that we start working with them for a couple of years so they are the candidates that can apply for our analyst program and other leading businesses in the space because we're going to have to make our own population because right now the young population goes, there's no one that looks like me in that business except for maybe Rick Lewis and a few other people that I know, I don't want to point them out here because I don't give them any airtime. Like, because they're all friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but we've we've got to make our own populations. So that we've got, you know, a feeder network, a, a starter team, a junior team that can grow up to be, you know, middle and senior people over time. And that's the only way. I've seen it happen in the states too. It's like, if you can't find the population because they're not coming, getting out of school, thinking that this is the job they want, then we've got to help them make, be ready. Yeah. I don't know who who said this, but I've always remembered this like powerful quote where it says, "You cannot be what you cannot see," and like I genuinely believe representation it matters. Like it matters on a whole number of different levels. But when individuals, and this is I think for people of all walks of life, when individuals are able to see themselves in somebody that's achieving, it gives them a greater hope it gives them a greater ambition or it makes it seem real makes it makes it seem tangible to them what 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 would you say the what would you say the main impediments to that thought process are well i'm going to say that i think that's that's true i mean i think that you know it's hard to envision yourself you know i mean i think that there are five critical elements um, you know, to helping and igniting and encouraging and sustaining talented young people on the path to better. And first is experience, providing them experiences so that they can, they can actually sit there and, and go like, oh, this is what that's like and normalize the experience. Then feeding their aspiration and expanding that aspiration bubble to go, you thought you could only do this, but now you can see you could do that belief, which is like helping them either because they see me or they've experienced it or they normalize the other people in it, believing that they belong in the picture, you know, that, that they actually can see, you know, like you can actually want to be because you can see, or like I've had many experiences in the past where you're like, okay, if these are the leaders in this business, I'm in, or like I can do this, right? Like that moment. And then giving them the resources and support. Um, I think that's what we've been trying to do. And I think those are the the, you know, the critical elements. I've gone through a transformation in the last, I don't know, handful of years because uh, partially because I was busy just doing my job and looking after and curating, you know, my teenage daughter's young life. So I was pretty busy, but I have a hoodie that I wear a lot that my friends know, and it's called Do Good in Silence. And that was my strategy for a long time, which is I'm you know, I joke with my kids all the time. Like, I don't even have to finish it. And they know, I go, I'm not playing, right? Why? And they're like, because you don't play. 
like I just get stuff done. And I would do that privately. But then I recognized in the last bunch of years, I have a responsibility to be out there and more out front showing like, actually, you can do this. I was no different than you. Here's how you do it. Um, and so I think it is really important for all of us when we can, the best, the best way we can with the time that we can to show that like actually we're here and there are role models and it is possible and to normalize the hardships. I think that's one of the biggest things that because people don't see the grind and the, like sometimes they think like, wow, this is really hard. And I've had talks where I'm like, it is hard. If it was easy, it would feel like a beach in the Caribbean. It's supposed to be hard. It's work. Like, this is the hard part. Like, just keep going. And I think that reinforcement, whether it's mentoring or examplehood or whatever, is really important. And I've, I've committed over the last several years to being out in front and more, more evident and obvious so that people feel like, okay, I could do that. When did that moment click for you personally where you were like, you know, the people around me, they're not, they're no one, they're, they're not nothing special. Like, they're not innately better than me. Like, I'm, I can be as good as anyone that I want to be, if not better. When did that moment click for you? Uh, I mean, for me, I, I was probably, I was a little cheeky. I think that came from, you know, a little bit of my parents and definitely from my maternal grandmother who just felt like, you know, put yourself in situations, you know, don't waste an opportunity. But where it really happened for me where I think the biggest expansion of my aspiration bubble was in university. I went to an Ivy League school in the States, the US version of Oxbridge. And my first year roommates, one was a third generation student. So his father and grandfather had both gone to the same school. And the other one, his, uh, my other roommate, his father had donated back then multi-millions of dollars for the college center, which had his name on it. I mean, like you couldn't have any more sort of insiders and they're both good people, but they were completely insiders. And this was old hat. This is just what you did in their family. And I, after a few weeks, I was like, if, and, and bless them because they're good friends. I was like, if these knuckleheads are the <laughs> captains of industry in the world, I am so in, like I can do this. There's no question. And that's what I normalized in school. It's like, I saw myself in the picture for the first time. I'm like, there's nothing I can't do. If he, seriously, like, same thing, like, even playing at that level of basketball, you know, like, you're, you're sitting there going, like, um, I, I knew I was pretty good, but, like, if this is what it's like, I can do this. I can be in these classes. I can lead these things. And that was, that was when I realized that, like, you can't underestimate what a young person believes their limitations are because they have an experience outside of their own bubble. When you pop that bubble and show it to them and they sit in it, you know, I've had mentees back when I was in the States before I moved here, by week three, they're emailing me with their, their uh, signature line is the real CEO. They've already decided like, I can do what you're doing. He's like, I've only been here three weeks and I'm taking over this place. That's a great moment because they're no longer scared. They understand they have work to do, but they're like, I actually know how these places work now. I've come into business and this is a leading money management business. I want one of these. That's awesome. And we've kind of touched upon it so far. And I can see that you're wearing that special hat there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but if, could you just uh, further elaborate on the Black Hearts Foundation, exactly what it is and what you look to do with, within that foundation. Yeah, so, so we established it about 20 years ago now. Um, and what we've been trying to do is remove the barriers to aspiration and achievement for young people that were talented and committed and trying to do better with their life. Um, we do it two ways. We provide uh, economic support to programs that encourage them, mentor them, provide pastoral care, keep them out of trouble, you know, Saturday school, you know, et cetera, extra programs, outward bound stuff. So we provide economic support to, to groups that are already doing that. And since 2013, we've had a Black Heart Scholars program where they could provide, where they could apply to us for direct bursaries and scholarships um, to go to school or to further education. It isn't all just a university. So we have 100 scholars at 56 programs and universities throughout the UK. We've just 
awarded another 20 scholarships in the last two weeks. So we've got 120 potential scholars and the opportunities to just do more of that. So we've just issued a campaign in the last um, two weeks. Two weeks ago, we challenged the public to come join us and supercharge our efforts. Myself and my board have said that we will put up matching funds up to 500,000 pounds. We're going to raise a million pounds to pay for 100 new scholars. In the two weeks, we've already raised about 350,000 of that 500,000. You know, it's, it's a great response. Um, if I'm really pushy, I would say it is fantastic, but not nearly enough. Yeah. You know, not nearly enough for what we do because we're 100% pass-through organization. So every penny that you contribute to the foundation goes to the scholars. We pay all the overhead. We pay for the caps, the hoodies, everything. So everything that, that is donated gets doubled by us and goes to the scholars. And we've been around for 20 years, so there's no risk in supporting us. And if I can take a moment to be really cheeky, I'm like, I look at lovely Captain Tom, now Sir Tom, went out to raise a thousand pounds and ended up with 32 and a half million. Like us asking for 500,000 to put in 100 new scholars or more into 56 schools in your own country is just not that much. No, no, it really isn't in, in, in the grand scheme of things. It really isn't. And the impact that will then have on their lives will it, it, it will change their lives forever. Yeah. And, and, and look, a lot of them, they all want to pay it forward. They understand. I mean, you know, I've had great moments when you actually grant these scholarships. People like they can't believe that someone outside of their family or relatives is actually willing to do this for them. They all become imbued with this notion that they want to pay it forward. Like when I can help either the foundation or do this for someone else, I can't. So at some level, we're creating an army. We better their lives, their families' lives, their community, our country, and they're energized to do it for somebody else. Even if only half of them do it for somebody else, we've got a huge ripple effect that's going to change the future of our, our country. And how does one get a successful application what's the what's the route that an individual has to take yeah so it's pretty simple so one either you could go through one of the community organizations that we you know that we engage with east side young leaders academy generating genius the amos bursary trust but really easy you can go to our website at blackheartfoundation.org punch the you know the button for the scholars program then it asks you to fill out like a three or four page application which says where are you? What are you doing? What were your past grades? What do you want to do? What do you think you'll do after you finish the program? What does it cost? What can you contribute? And what's the gap? And we, we effectively, for people that are co-invested in it, that have done well and are, are aspiring to do better, we fund the gap. It's that easy. And we have a rolling admissions program so that you don't have to wait that long to get an answer. Like, you know, it isn't like a yearly intake. We yeah. just keep doing this. And what's, what's, what's the final vision? If you were to look into the future in 20 years or so, what would you want the Black, the Black Hearts Foundation to, to look like? Well, it, so right now we're at 120 scholars, like the opportunity is to do literally thousands, even just in the UK. I mean, you know, there's so many people that could be helped out this. This isn't just for black or BAME kids. This is for underrepresented and under-resourced kids, whether they're black, white, brown, orange, whatever it is, right? Right now, to date, of the first 100, 85% were, were BAME scholars, but that's because that's the intake and that's they're feeding each other and some of the community programs has been focused on them. But the opportunity to do this for literally a generation and a half and beyond of of young people that are talented that are just trying to figure out how they pay for things. I mean, this is who I was. You go back a bunch of years. You know, my parents, you know, worked really hard, but when I got into the schools I did, they were like, how are we going to pay for this? Now, back then there were more scholarships and loans and et cetera, because I went to a school that didn't have athletic scholarships. I could have, you know, found a way to get that paid for if I accepted an athletic scholarship, but the Ivy League doesn't do that. And you look at that number, that was possible now because the government provided access grants to do that. In the US and the UK, it doesn't now. So it's gonna rely heavily on the private market. I'd like to see this be 10 times as large. 
And I'd like to also that our alums, now that from the 2013 class, they're out in the business world, they'll circle back and be part of the answer. That, that, that would be the most gratifying thing. Might be able to take over your empire. Take yeah. over the Tristan Capital Empire. <laughs> okay, come get it. I don't want it forever, I just want it for now. <laughs> As you mentioned earlier that, and I think pretty much everyone will be able to tell due to your accent that you're both British and American. Uh, first question, where is home? Where's home for you? Where do you see, like, where's home? Yeah, so home is here. I mean, so I, I moved over here, as I said, 21 years ago. I have two daughters that are 17 and 20 years old. One's, you know, at home now because this goes to university in the states but they think they, they were born here raised here primary secondary school they think that they're english first and american second until the olympics are on and then they remember oh we're half american <laughs> <laughs> they like gold medals for some reason no. No, that's a competitive. no but this is home i mean this is i mean it's great that i can be back in boston and new york and slide right into my friends network and in the business community. I feel like, you know, my friends in New York, I joke, I go, I'm the international man of mystery. I'm comfortable in every place. Um, <laughs> and it's not quite true, but I, I feel very fortunate to be comfortable in both places, but this is home. I live in North London. This is home. I don't expect I'm moving anytime sooner ever. You know, I love the fact that I can passport back into the U.S. and spend considerable time there and feel at home as well. But this is my home. This is what I'm investing in. Are you a Celtics or Knicks fan? Celtics, Celtics, yeah, not Boston Celtics, yeah. How, how, you know, yeah, I mean, I, there's different teams I've liked over the time and different players, but like, I grew up with the Celtics, yeah. And how, how do you reckon their chances are? Uh, yeah, they're still rebuilding. I mean, there's just too many teams. I mean, I, like, I, I think that they got pretty exciting a couple of years ago and then they ran into LeBron and that was <laughs> often, I think, until LeBron goes. I mean, I think the, the Celtics have some great young players and I think they're a player, a player and a half away from being a considerable force back in the East. But there's a lot of teams that have tooled up and, um, you know, it, 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 it'll be interesting. You know, right now, a lot of the power is in the West. So even if you get out of the East and get past Milwaukee and Giannis, you've got to still take on the powers in the West. And uh, uh, But for COVID, this was going to be a really interesting postseason. I think now in the bubble, I don't know what to expect. It's, I, I'm, I actually, I, you know, I've been listening to a few, like, commentators talk about it. But I actually think this is going to be, it's going to throw so many spanners in the work. You know, there's no home court, no home court advantage. Um, everyone, all, all the conditions are standardized for every team. It's, it's going to be no fans. No fans. I mean, you know what it's like. I mean, like, think about playing indoors in front of 40,000, right? Like, like the old Boston Garden, this is, the, this is before they had the TD Bank North Garden in, in Boston. That place literally used to be I mean, the temperature would go from, you know, 24 degrees Celsius to 30 degrees Celsius during game time. Right? Like, and the place literally rocked. You literally thought you could see the girders rock. So home games, when it used to be Celtics versus, the, you know, the Sixers, Celtics versus the Lakers, like home court advantage meant everything, everything. And so, like, now you get there and there's nobody there. I mean, you know, I played in university games where there was that many people or just almost that many people there. And like, you know, whether it's help or it's incredibly intimidating, it's a huge factor, as you'd know, from being on the pitch. And who's your money on? If you had to, if you had to pick a team to win, who would you, who would you pick? Ah, uh, that's tough. You know, before the bubble, you know, LeBron and the Lakers have so much experience. And now that they have AD, you know, it, it looks like they've got a real good chance. I mean, you know, I, I think... I think the bubble has helped them, right? Because now the experience that he has and brings to that team, and they picked up a couple of other players, uh, you know, in the bubble, I think they're going to come out of this a little bit better. I mean, I think teams out of the East, like, you know, Milwaukee with Giannis, they were still growing in confidence. And 
postseason experience. I don't think that this interim pandemic period has helped them any. So I, as much as it pains me, I mean, I have a lot of respect for LeBron and his achievements, but I can't ever back the Lakers, right? Because I'm <laughs> Boston. So, but I think, I think they've got a really good chance at winning it again, or winning it for the first time in a long time. Uh, I um, part of me, I, I, I just want to upset. I don't want, I don't want the favorite to win. Um, yeah. I, I'm either, to be honest, if the Clippers win, I don't know if it will really be an upset or not. But I would, I would, I would like the Clippers to to win if they well, don't. The, win. the Clippers would be an upset because the franchise has never won it, so it would be mm-hmm. great. I mean, and they've got the talent with Kawhi, but. Um, but again, you know, you have to have been there a few times to get it done. I mean, yeah. you know, there's a surprise once in a while, but you know how much experience means in yeah. the biggest games. Like picturing yourself, like we've talked about it with the young people that we were, you know, that we try to help. Picturing yourself in that big game and picturing yourself winning, sometimes is a fluke, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of value to having been there a couple of times. You hate to lose on the way there. But having been there at the championship game or championship series means a lot. Yeah. If they don't, I, I just don't want James Harden and Russell to go the whole career without winning one. I, I just want them to win, win something. But who yeah, knows? Totally, yeah, totally. Look, I, I'll get in there, and this won't be popular with everyone. I don't know. I just can't warm up to James Harden. I want Russell to win something because he's a warrior. James yeah. Harden, there's just something there. He's a great player, but there's just something that, like, yeah, I mean, but do they deserve to win something? Probably, but there's been a lot of people that deserve. I mean, Charles Barkley deserved to win something. He 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 didn't win anything. So, who knows? Um, and as you mentioned, you played basketball, and probably the most famous person, <laughs> maybe that you even know. I don't know. <laughs> probably the most famous man in the world um, was Michael Jordan, and you played against him. How was that experience in college? And was it any surprise that he went on to go and do the things that he did? I mean, I, so first it was great. I mean, I think anytime you play in any sport or aspire in anything, you want to try and play against the best. So having the opportunity to play against the best, I mean, who knew at that time he was going to be one of the, well, I think he's the best that ever was. I mean, someone asked me this recently on a show and I said, look, all respect to Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal and LeBron James, but, MJ won three championships, retired, came back and won three more. Any questions? Any questions? So, um, so it was great to have had that experience. The, the bigger part was that their team was the number one team in the nation when we played them. It was a televised game. It wasn't just that he was a great player. They were the best team in the nation when we played them. And, you know, it didn't go well for us, but you love to put yourself in those situations where you're playing the best and know what it's like. You know, I'd like in a different life to have had a different outcome. But the truth is, maybe this is huge rationalization, but if I was better at it and had a different outcome, my life would be completely different. Like I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be running this. I might have a foundation, but I wouldn't have had the experiences. You know, I would have spent much more time after university and, you know, and and playing in in the professional ranks than I did. Um, and, and I wouldn't have gone back to school. I wouldn't have moved on to what I call my third life and my fourth life now. Well, when one door closes, another door opens. Yeah, exactly and right. You're, I assume that you would have watched The Last Dance? Yeah. That, that, I mean, so that was my era. I mean, like all of the people in The Last Dance were my contemporaries. I mean, some of whom I played high school basketball against etc. So those were all people that I knew. I mean, I was barely like, I mean, you know, without, without going too far, I was just barely outside of the frame. I mean, you know, some of those people are still my friends, you know, that I either play golf with them or hang out with them when I'm back in New York or Boston or, or LA or, or, or Chicago. Um, so it was fascinating. I mean, I knew all of those stories, but to see them again and then relive them, I mean, you know, um, the first time that Bulls made the playoffs and played against the Celtics, the first game, I was at the game. The second game when Larry Bird was saying, hey, this Michael Jordan was pretty good, but no one knew what he was going to do in game two. I was sitting with my dad in my living room 
watching him score 63, right? Like, like that, that was my era. It was after my time, but like, I remember like it was yesterday, like I was involved in it. So um, it was pretty cool to watch it all play out. And uh, it, I think even better, it was interesting and fun for me to see it become, to enter other people's consciousness about like, wow, he was that good. This was going on and have people talk about it because that was part of what I lived through. And how do you, what's your take on, on his like leadership style? Because there was a whole load of debate about him being, you know, obviously super competitive, you know, extremely successful. But after the show, after the documentary aired, a number of his teammates um, called him liar, called him a liar, called him fake. People like Horace Grant, um, and some of the other members of the other lesser known members of like the Bulls cast, like called him out for being a snitch or a bad teammate, etc. What's your whole take on on that whole situation? You can't, you can never tell unless you're first person how much was real and how much was revisionist history. I think I'm going to just go out and say that, of course, there was some of both there, right? I mean, what what we're sure of is that. He is a phenomenal athlete. He's a great winner. He is hyper-competitive, not just in basketball, but everything in life. I mean, in golf, he's legendary. If you go out and beat him, he wants to play again. You beat him, he wants to play again. Like, if it's not light out, he wants to find a way to throw golf balls. Like, that's just who he is. And I think that that graded on some people that were close to him. Like, nobody wants to be driven that hard all the time in every situation. Now, was that just who he was to win and be at the highest level? Or was that a personality growth defect flaw? It's probably not mine to judge, right? But you can see the reactions of some which said, look, we, we can't put a nice yellow bow on top of this, right? <laughs> you know, like some of it was just, he was just a pure jerk. It wasn't just that he was hyper-competitive. They were close enough to it. I mean, all I can tell you is that I've saw the hyper-competitive side and the stories I continue to get is like, yeah, I mean, you don't want to try and beat him in golf because you'd be out there all day. <laughs> and the last question of the last dance, do you have any partying stories with Dennis Rodman? <laughs> <laughs> I do not. And if I did, I, I, there's no way I would be telling him in public. There's no question about it. No, no, um, I, you know, I didn't know Dennis. Um, I mean, I knew who he was, and, I, and I've been in the same room once or twice, but literally no relationship with him, you know, whatsoever. So, um, um, but yeah, I know, uh, I have a lot of friends that are pretty colorful and know how to party and, and know how to do interesting things, but I don't think anyone compares to the worm. I mean, he did it all, right? I mean, when your teammate has to come, like, <laughs> that moment where, where, Jordan and Pippen are telling Phil Jackson, like, he's not coming back after two days. And he's like, no, 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 I've talked to Dennis. He will come back. And then after four days, they're like, we got to go get him. And they go get him. And Carmen Electra's like, I'm in the room and I'm ducking under the curtains because, because he hasn't left yet. I'm like, who does that, right? In the middle of a season. Wild, honestly. I don't know how that could happen in, in, in my team, to be honest. <laughs> exactly. On a slightly more serious note, there's obviously at this point in time, it's, there's the upcoming U.S. election that's in November, I think. November. Yeah, November final elections in November. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know how to phrase this question. How do you analyze this whole situation? Are you? Do you have a side? Do you? Yeah, I'm just going to come out like we don't even have to be polite about this. We need a change of leadership a complete change of leadership. I mean, it's not even about what my politics are. My politics are probably in the other party anyway. I grew up in Massachusetts, it's highly democratic, you know, so Obama administration, democratic, that, that is my leaning anyway. But it's just a wholesale lack of ethical, high moral ground leadership almost in every front. Um, the sad part, no matter what the politics are, because you know, good minds can disagree about politics and social policy and economic policy, but the government has now led the US to lower and lower 
moral ground in the world, and that's just a shame. The United States wasn't ever perfect or without flaws, but it did set a pretty good example of democracy and leadership and doing the right thing. And we have reversed most of that over the last few years because of the leadership and um, the current, I can't, I, I refuse to call him president. I mean, I, you know, that is effectively his title, but like he's not acting like it. And so you don't deserve the respect of it, you know, at least not in, when I'm not in person. It's mind boggling that he has got this far. It's mind boggling that he was, he's, he was genuinely elected. Sometimes when I hear him speak, I'm like, this guy's a comedian. He's not a politician. He's. Yeah, but, you, but you look at this, it, it's happened around the world. I mean, populist, you know, populist movements have elected people, like whether it's in the Philippines, et cetera, we've picked people mm -hmm. that were popular rather than were qualified to do the job. Like anyone could be president. Anyone can control the red button. Anyone could run effectively the largest economy and by far the largest super business of the world, right? And now I think we're realizing like, ooh, not anyone can do it. But the real scary part, and this is what feeds into some of the Black Lives Matters movement, you know, there was a YouGov poll last week, 40% of white Americans still favor him, like still view him positively, like 40%. Now, right now the, the other candidate, Joe Biden, is leading in most of the polls, but there's still 40 people that go, no, I think he's doing a good job. I'm like, are you blind? Like, are, are, you know, I mean, like, seriously, this isn't a difference of opinion. This is about favoring a status quo and safety versus wanting a better model that works for our country. It's about fear or something. Um, that's mind boggling, but you know why we're having these protests and anger because people sit there and go, uh, I don't know, I, I, am I the right arbiter to call him racist or prejudiced or insensitive or whatever but he's certainly on that spectrum of some of that yet there's a bunch of people that still go no no he's he's good for me yep no that, that works it's i think it also as you say it highlights where i think it highlights part of the problem and it highlights where america especially is with regards to its conversation about racism and and race some of the things that he said some of the things that he's done is just un like unacceptable but what do you think biden has to show slash do to beat him come 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 november well i mean i'd like to believe that he has to just not screw up like not <laughs> one of those screw up moments because it does look like the lead should be unassailable but you know anything could happen i think you know, to some extent, Biden has had a good policy, which is like, I'll just let him speak and screw up, and that's going to do all the work for me. But at some point before the end, Joe Biden's going to have to look like he's not business as usual. He is going to take control of the pandemic, the economy, and global relations in a way that is comfortable to his supporters, and perhaps reach across the aisle and be comfortable to some people that would be in the center or on the other side to go, that's a better leadership model for us, economically, morally, politically, to solidify this. Because there are just some people that will go, I'll take the dumb guy that's on my side versus somebody that's good and can move something forward. And I think, you know, I'm clearly biased, but I think that's what, you know, Obama did, is he gave, gave people hope and belief yeah. that he was going to move things forward. I know there's a debate on whether he accomplished as much as he led us to believe he could. There's a lot of arguments there and I want to go into it, but at least we felt like the position of president and the leadership was aspirational. Now, most of the time we have our heads in our hands, we're looking down and going, I can't believe this is my country. Yeah, but <clears throat> I am definitely of the same persuasion, but I do have, I'm a little bit worried about Mr. Biden because he does have the, potential to say some woeful things um, i can't remember exactly what the, the the quote it was but something on the, along the lines of what well, black people are crazy if you don't vote for me or i can't remember it was relatively recently but yeah he I, I think he needs to stay away from the mic a little bit I mean, <laughs> you know people have said that just going like you're doing fine don't talk too much yeah i i, I do think with 
all due respect, because, you know, at some level, he's putting himself out there after a life full of service. So, you know, you've got to give him credit that he still wants to do it and take the hassle and work this hard. But it does say something about sort of leadership politics now. Like the best people amongst us don't want the roles anymore. They don't want it. I mean, like the hassle, the abuse, the infighting, you know, I mean, I, where I feel like it started was back when Colin Powell was Secretary of State. You know, like I saw him, you know, take positions that he had to to support his administration that he didn't always feel comfortable with. And I think that was the beginning of a lot of good people saying, you know what, I'm not sure this is where I want to dedicate my life. I'd like to see that get reversed, both in the U.S. and certainly here in the U.K. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know. In, in the UK, I think, look, the numbers just aren't big enough. I mean, like, how far are we from having the potential for a black PM? I mean, like, I don't know the answer to that, but it doesn't feel like it's anytime soon. No disrespect to any people that feel like they're candidates for the job anytime soon, but like, I don't see a path for that being the case. You know, I don't feel like that is an open possibility for a black, BAME, or ethnic minority to be PM. I don't know, yeah. 10 years, 20 years? Like, I'd like to know that that's possible. I'm not sure I believe it yet. And I, I just think that the general level of leaders that we have, that we've had recently politically, have just been quite poor, to be honest. I think if you look across, even, not even talking about the leaders that we have now, I'm talking about the, even the leadership elections to get there, the general standard of individuals. If you were to go back, I don't know, 20 or so years, you may have problems with, you may have problems with their politics, you may have problems with things you've done, but yeah, I don't think you, could, you can argue that they were credible leaders like exactly right. Tony Blair, John um John Major, Margaret Thatcher, like you can have you can have issues with with their you know their politics. You can say they've done X, Y, and Z. But what is without question that they are respected, credible leaders who stand for something, which um less so now that we're actually at that place. Well I think that is the big question. It's like you either get politicians that are so centrist that you don't know what they stand for, and I'm not gonna say which country I'm talking about or which person, or you get flawed human beings. Those are the two people, two groups of people that are putting themselves up for leadership positions. I'm not being completely exclusive, but that's the problem. I feel like, you know, what, what human beings want is to be inspired and led. And I think we've seen the, the backside of the Obama administration was the last time that it happened there. And, and I'll leave it to other people's opinion on where they felt like it was the last time it happened here. I don't mean that they aren't competent human beings, but you know, it, it isn't sort of the best of us out there saying like, look, I've led a, a, a just positive personal and professional life and I want to be your leader. It's like, I'm the, the guy that's willing to take the junk to do the job is more often the case. Or woman, is that right? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, finally, what is success for you? What is success? Um, <clears throat> so I talk about this a lot, and I think it confuses some people. Like for me, success truly is like so. Like when I talk to young people, they go, "How much money do you have? Like what kind of car do you drive? Where do you go on holiday?" And I go, "No, no, you got it all wrong." What you should be seeking in life is freedom of choice. That's success to me. Like what I've achieved in my career or financially, it has afforded me freedom of choice. I can do almost anything I want. I can go almost anywhere I want. My children have access to the things I want. So the freedom to choose is how I define success. That's what I've been working so hard for is that within reason almost nobody can tell me what I can't do and that's very different than how I grew up and my parents and my grandparents grew up that's success to me and what is failure to you failure I think is just not living up to the potential that sort of 
I have. And I think that's, you know, I, I think we all have different definitions of that. But if I have the ability to do something and don't do it, and it isn't a conscious choice, then I feel like I failed. Awesome. Thank you very much, Mr. Rick Lewis. I appreciate your time. Thanks. All right. Thank you, too. Look forward to seeing you sometime soon. Thank you for listening. Please let me know what you think and what you are enjoying about Pearl Conversations in the reviews.